Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying the Word of God. We ask your blessing upon us this evening. We pray that our hearts will be in tune to the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he seeks to illuminate these truths to our heart as we read Scripture and think about the Apostle Paul's words to the church at Philippi. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. Chapter 3 and verse 12, and uh, sort of entitled this section, Practical Theology. We started off chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, with a warning against the Judaizers. Remember, these Judaizers were people in the first century who professed to be Christians. They were Jewish, uh, of a Jewish heritage and background, but they they uh, couldn't break away from their Jewish background completely, and they believe that, okay, Christ is the Messiah and we have to trust him, but we also have to keep the law and be circumcised. We have to keep the Mosaic regulations. And Paul sees that as a kind of a works religion. You're adding works to salvation, to faith, to justification. So he is, in verses 1 through 6, warning about the threat of those Judaizers. And then uh, in verses 7 through 11, remember what this section is entitled, uh, um, well, the first 1 through 6 was entitled Judaizers as the Context for Theology. That is, Paul, we said, often uses uh, his battles with opponents and false teachers to set forth what is the correct theology. Um, sometimes you can spend too much time studying false theology. It's good to know the man who I was saved under, he had this saying, he would say, if, the best way to know if a, uh, to tell a crooked stick is to lay a straight stick beside it. And so sometimes the best way to really, instead of sometimes getting too involved in the cults and what they all believe and everything like that, it's good to know some of that, but... It's best to know the truth, ultimately, to confront error. And so Paul, in verses 7 through 11, kind of sets forth his own understanding of things in, in the context of these Judaizers. And remember, we talked about last time about um, how that Paul saw his previous life as really not helping his salvation. We called it spiritual bankruptcy, that is, all that he accomplished in Judaism, which seems so wonderful, all that he accomplished in the religious world of his day. He was, he was one of the leading religious leaders for his young age. He says it really didn't help him gain what he wanted. It didn't bring him closer to God. It was really worthless. It was, uh, you know, it didn't help at all. And he says... Um, he goes on then to describe the true situation, what, what, he, what we really should be looking for. And I, we sort of said you could look at this as sort of the three phases of salvation. He talks about justification, that is the imputed righteous that we, we need. The problem with Judaism, these Judaizers were, they were trying to establish their own righteousness. They were trying to do good works to be righteous. And Paul says, no, we need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and that comes simply by faith or trust in Christ. And then we looked at sanctification there in 3.10. Paul says, even though I am saved, I am born again, and I know Christ in the sense of I, I know him as my Savior, yet I want to know him more. I want to grow in my knowledge of Christ we call that sanctification. Then he said, I want to ultimately attain to the resurrection of the dead, which is glorification. Oh, I forgot I had a quiz here. I was going to ask you about. See if you see what you can do with this. Um, somewhere here, I thought I had a, a quiz. Let's see. Yes. If you can't find it, that's okay. That's all right. I want to do that. <laughs> After his conversion, this is true and false, after his conversion, Paul came to view his previous success in Judaism as spiritual bankruptcy. True, I just said that. These are easy to deny here. But I know you had a hard time and all that, so I want to know. The righteousness, quote, the quote, the righteousness that comes from 
God and is by faith. That's chapter 3, verse 9. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith is another way of speaking of justification. True. When Paul says he wants to know Christ, he means knowing in the sense of sanctification. True. I've just talked about that. Yeah. Uh, number four, glorification will be in some sense a state of perfection for the Christian. I don't know if I touched on that too much. That's true in a sense, isn't it? I mean, we, we, won't, be, we won't be God, but we'll have perfect bodies and there won't be a, a physical problems. We won't be encumbered by sin and so forth. Number five, salvation is both a past, present, and future experience. True, it is. It's all three in that sense. We'll talk more about that perfection here right now as we get to this practical theology section. So I say in, in the rest of this section, in the rest of chapter 3 now, Paul attempts to apply these theological concerns that we've just been talking about to the Philippian situation, to where they are. Now let's look at this. I've entitled these, these verses uh, Frustration and Hope because uh, there is a sense in which um, living in this life, there's a sense of frustration sometimes it comes. Um, there's a sense of frustration with our own spiritual condition, but there's always hope. We always look, look out and we have hope. Let's look at this frustration and hope that we encounter every day of our lives as Christians or many days of our lives. He says in verse 12, not that I have already attained. Now, obtained. Now, we have to go back and look at the context of that. That's verse 11 where he talked about and somehow attained the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about the goal of resurrection from the dead, glorification to follow. He says, not that I've already attained all this. I haven't obtained all that, that I've been talking about, this sanctification. This, I haven't obtained that. Or have already arrived at my goal. You know, I haven't already arrived at my goal. Uh, we as Christians haven't arrived. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So I say here, Paul has not attained to his goal of the resurrection, nor the full knowledge of Christ. Remember, he says, I want to know Christ. So... Paul was not perfect, though he's longing for some sort of perfection. He's long, that's why I say glorification is a kind of perfection. We're not God, but we're longing for that better state, that more perfect state. So although he doesn't claim perfection, he does tell us what he does claim. He says, uh, he says I press on. Not that I've already owned, but I press on. This is... Uh, uh, one paraphrase of this, Paul's in hot pursuit. Paul is really concerned about his own spiritual life. He really wants to make progress on his, in his own spiritual life. And I say here, Paul hoped to reach his goal because he had already been reached by Christ. This is a little strange language for us, the verbs here. Uh, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. It, what, is it, what does it mean, Christ took hold? Well, it means Christ reached out to me in my sinful condition, Paul says. Christ took hold of me. He's the one who started my salvation. He, he came to me, he, and, and, and then, then I took hold of Christ. You know, as a result of that, Christ worked in me, and I took hold of Christ, and I'm trusting Christ, I'm holding on to Christ. I'm trying to reach that goal, that ultimate goal that God has for me. So we see this, this statement that balances Paul's own self-distrust with the confidence he has in the work of Christ. You know, he's not, he's not overly confident. He doesn't explain a sense of, I'm going to use this word triumphalism in a moment here. It's a, it's a word that's used a lot now in Christian circles. But, but triumphalism, triumphalism is a term that means have you heard people use this term triumphalism it's a it's a word I, I didn't encounter it 15 years ago or so but it's a word that's used quite a bit and it speaks of an attitude that says uh i know what's right my views are right and yours are wrong and sometimes you you it, it sometimes it speaks of a sense of of a demeaning of another person i i'm i i 
I, I, I'm going out with my chest stuck out, you know, I've arrived, I've got it, and you're nothing. You're, you're just junk. You're, you're crummy. I mean, just watch the NFL on Sunday. <laughs> there you'll see triumphalism on display when guys make a touchdown. They're strutting around the end zone like they have conquered the world or something. Uh, you ladies may not know about this, but we men, we see this, we see this every week if you watch football. That's triumphalism. Well, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't like that, and, and we see a lot of that in some of his epistles. Uh, Corinthians, Christians can display that. Christians can display that sort of attitude. I've arrived, we've made it, and so forth. And Paul says, no, even the great apostle, <laughs> I'm, I'm look, I, I haven't arrived. Even the great apostle has not arrived. And so he says, uh, I haven't obtained. I haven't got there yet. I still have a ways to go. Verse 12, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. That is, the resurrection, the glorified state. I haven't taken hold of it. I haven't reached perfection. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. And then he'll say in verse 14, I press toward the mark of the goal, which God is, you know, the high calling, the heavenward call. I say here, Paul catches the attention of his readers, brothers and sisters, and elaborates the point of verse 12 that he has not reached the final goal. He uses the imagery of a runner who has one object in view, namely that of finishing the race and winning the prize. So we think of a runner, you know, and you watch the Olympics and so forth. They're at the 100-yard dash. They're straining forward, leaning forward. Sometimes it's just the person who leans forward gets it, doesn't they? They just barely lean at the tape, and they make the race. Paul is using that metaphor the race metaphor because of the Olympic Games and various other athletic games that were quite popular in his day. So he's emphasizing the human responsibility side of verse 12. Here's what I have to do. I, don't, I haven't obtained, but I strain toward what is ahead. So what, what Paul is saying is here is he didn't look back at his past failures too much. He didn't, he didn't look back at the past. He was straining toward the future with all that he could to be the best Christian he could be. And he's telling us that the Christian life involves a lot of forgetting what is behind. We have to do a lot of forgetting of what is behind and kind of a continual, a kind of a continual centering our energies on what is ahead of us. Now, obviously, forgetting what is behind doesn't mean just totally obliterating our memories and just, you know, go in and somebody do a a brain swipe of our brains. I mean, Paul, back in verses 5 through 7, told us about his past. He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He He was aware of his past and all that. But he didn't let that absorb his attention. He didn't dwell on the past, the mistakes of the past, or what he gave up in the past. That's very hard for Christians to do. If you, you know, people who counsel a lot of Christians, pastors will tell you one of the problems sometimes they have is people just can't let go of the past. They're still haunted by things that happened, this happened, mistakes here. They just can't seem to move forward. It's, it's, it's just a real problem. And so Paul says in my own life, Paul has a lot of regrets, he says. He has things that, that you know, he's got to just, lay that aside, put it aside, forget what's behind and press toward what God wants me to do, God's goal for me, sanctification, pleasing Christ. Paul never allowed his Christian heritage or even his previous Christian attainments to obstruct the race. He didn't look back and think, I've done so much or anything. So, that's a very important point, isn't it, to forget what is behind, kind of leave that, leave those, you know, sins in the past. If we, God forgive me, I'm going to go forward here. Leave, you know, bad experiences, failures, disappointments, and don't let that just take hold of our minds and move forward here. He says, verse 14, and I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
Say Paul continues the race metaphor and compares his Christian life to the idea of pressing toward onward to the goal so as to win the, the prize. Now he's using an illustration or a metaphor or a figure here. And really in this figure, the goal and the prize are the same. I press toward the goal and when I get to the goal, I get the prize. And that ultimate goal or prize is really final salvation. I'm pressing toward the goal, the prize of final salvation. It's true we're saved. We said we're born again, we're justified, but God has much more for us. He wants us to uh, be sanctified, to be holy people, and he wants us to make progress in that in this life. He has called us. We have this heavenward calling. Remember the word called when used by Paul, always speaks of this effectual call. That is, God calls us to salvation. He takes the first step. He brings us to Christ. Paul, every time you see Paul use this word call, he, he's speaking of this, um, this effectual or this effective call, this call that brings us to Christ. Um, just many, many verses in Scripture, he, he uses that terminology. Now, let's look at verses 15, 16. He continues on this thought, continuing on this need to press forward, to go forward, therefore to grow in Christ. How does this come to us? Paul says it comes through obedience. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. That is the view I've just expressed. Forget those things that are behind. Don't rely upon your past don't worry about your past failures so much. Don't, uh, don't count on your past uh, successes so much. Think about the future, pressing toward the goal, uh, the future. So Paul says, um, those of us who are mature should take a view of these things. That is that we should be kind of singularly focused, um, just have kind of a singular goal, but this one thing I do, that is, I'm, my main concern in my life is my own spiritual growth and my relationship to God. And, uh, and you know, that's very hard to do. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's very difficult to do uh, because we live in a world where there's just so much distraction for us, isn't there? I mean, it's hard to focus on these kinds of things. It is for me. It's just hard uh, to do because the things of life crowd in. There's just so much going on. I mean, um, uh, I was thinking about uh, Ken and I have watched some videos of this guy on the Internet. And uh, Hickok 45, you've seen some of his videos. But he always ends these videos with, he says, life is good. Life is good. You remember that? <laughs> well, that's one of the problems for us as Christians is life is good. It has been for me, at least, you know. I mean, there are people who have had very difficult lives and very hard lives, and they may be having difficulty now. But for many of us, I grew up in the post-World War II generation. My parents had it pretty tough. They lived during the Depression. But for me, it's been good. It's been a good life. It's been very good. And because we have so many of those good things, you know, it's just hard to sometimes, there's so many distractions, it's hard to focus on what is the most important thing in life. And that's what Paul is saying here this one thing I do. And so he says, we should, if, if those of us who have grown some in Christ, who are mature in Christ, and what does it mean here to be mature? Well, it's what he says actually in verse 16, only let us live up to what we have obtained. Those of us who have lived up, you know, we're trying to follow scripture. We're living up to the light we have. We have some maturity. Then we should take this kind of view. And he says, and if on some points you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. I say, apparently not all Paul's Christian friends at Philippi have the same attitude he has just expressed. Paul exhorts some of those who are mature to think in harmony with what he has just said and promises that those who think differently about minor points will be enlightened by God if their attitude is right. I say next, in the latter part of verse 15, Paul indicates that if the Philippians generally agree with verses 13 through 14, what we just talked about, but still differ on some isolated points. He says, 
All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. We should have this singular focus in our Christian lives. We should be agreed on that's the most important thing in our lives. And if we have such a view, but we still differ, I say, on some isolated point, he's confident that God will lead them to the truth if their minds are open to his leading. So what is this some point? And if on some point you think differently, apparently this refers to some inadequacies or some inconsistencies in their outlook, some things they differ with Paul on. Paul Paul knows that not everyone is going to agree with him in every single detail, and that's true in a church like this. Not everybody is going to agree on every single detail, but we have to agree on the big things. (laughs) We have to agree on the most important things, and that's what Paul is saying. But he's saying... If we have disagreements on, on some other things, Paul says God will lead them into further truth and help them to re- remove these kinds of is- inconsistencies. God will help us. God will help us in these things if we're honest, you know, but you know, we can't have disagreements on the bigger things here. He says in verse 16 then, only let us live up to what we have already obtained. I say here, no one, however, must wait for God to reveal the truth on all points before he begins to give himself to spiritual growth. We don't have to know everything perfectly. We don't have to agree on everything. You know, if we just, it's, it's hard enough just to live up to what we know. That's our big problem. And we, we are, we, most, many of us know a lot of truth, but it's very hard to be consistent and live up to that. So Paul says each believer should, fully, should exercise fully the degree of the maturity that they have. People are at different stages in their Christian life. You start off very young, immature, you're just learning, you're growing, you make progress, and so forth. And so he's just saying we should maintain a consistent life in harmony with the truth we have. We don't expect a new Christian to, 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 to be right on everything, to, 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 to do everything that a more mature Christian does. They're going to make mistakes. There's a lot of sin hanging on. You get an adult who's saved at 30 years old today. I mean, you know, <laughs> what has a 30-year-old been doing today? They probably have been engaged in a lot of sinful activity, most likely, if they're 30 years old today. So you just don't come to Christ and just get rid of all that the next day. That just doesn't fall away that quickly. But we have to live up to the truth that we know as we learn it, as we're taught it, as we are hear about it, as we read about it. And so Paul recognized that Christians are at different places in their stage of growth, and we have to be faithful as much to God as we can, as much to the truth we understand at the time. That's all he's asking for the Philippians here. Be faithful to the truth that you know at the time. I mean, the problem for most of us when we get into sinful problems, we're, we're not living up to the truth we know. It's not because we don't know something, because we are just uninformed. We often know we just don't live up to it. Now he talks about patterns of behavior. Paul uh, wants to use his example as a pattern and other people's example as a pattern for the Philippians to, to follow. And that's, that it's very important, these patterns of behavior and examples of other people. We, we learn so much from imitating and watching other people. Children learn from their parents, and we as Christians do too. Most of us, many of us, have in, been influenced by other Christians. You know, it, we're, there are other Christians that we follow after, we imitate them. Uh, it, it's just a common thing to do. Uh, so I say here, so as to re, uh, so he says in verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I say, so as to reinforce his exhortation. Paul now contrasts two dramatically opposed patterns of behavior, his own in verse 17 and his enemies in verses 18 and 19. We'll come to that. So he's going to contrast two models. He's been encouraging us to leave behind, go forward, strive for, strive for, for godliness and holiness and so forth. And he says, use me as an example and keep your eyes on those who live as we do here. Uh, in many places, the Apostle Paul will often appeal 
for people to follow his example. As I said, these examples are very important. Uh, I remember the man whose ministry I was saved under. You know, he was such an example that I wanted to be like him. You know, I wanted to follow him. I'm sure it was through him that I went into the ministry. It was a major thing that really got me into it was because I was so taken by him, you know. And uh, his example and his following Christ, his love for Christ and so forth. Those are powerful things. And so Paul will often appeal in his epistles for people to follow his example. He tells the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? He tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He tells the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. He's particularly talking there about working and not being idle and things like that and so forth. So he's num- a number of passages he has this kind of exhortation about following his example. But this carries kind of a special force, I think, because of what he has just conceded in verses 12 through 14. Paul asked the the Philippians to follow his example, not because he had reached perfection, but because he was struggling in the same race they were in. The Apostle Paul is not a saint in the Catholic sense of the saint. He wasn't a perfect man. He's running the race. He's running the Christian life. He's striving against sin. He's fighting sin, struggling against sin every day of his life. He's a sinner, but he's, he's, he's pursuing excellence. He's pursuing godliness and holiness. And so that's why he can say here, follow my example. I'm in this race. Follow me in this race. And Paul includes others here because, as I said, he says, um, and on those who live as we do. So apparently there were people in Philippi. You notice he says, live as we do. So apparently the Philippians could see these people. And therefore, apparently there were people, we assume there were people in Philippi who were living as the Apostle Paul. They were good examples. And he wants them to imitate people who are like him at Philippi and so forth. But then there's a different pattern of behavior here. Notice verse 18. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I say here, Paul spells out why. The four here indicates why. His urgent injunctions or exhortations of verse 17 are necessary. It's necessary for you to follow our example It's necessary for you to follow me as a model and to keep your eyes on others who live because the reason is because there are other models out there. There are other people you could imitate out there. There are others, unfortunately, that I have told you before and I have to tell you now with tears, they're living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's a very sad thing. These people are the very opposite of a godly example, of the example Paul mentions in verse 17. These people are, they are a bad example. So there are professing Christians who are a bad example in this, and they're a danger to the congregation. They're a danger here to the, the Philippian congregation. Now, there's a big question. In fact, when I just was down the hall here, and somebody in your church asked me, what, where are you at in Philippians? And I said, well, we're right here at the end of chapter 3. They said, well, who are these people who, uh, who are enemies, live as enemies of the cross of Christ? Who are these people? <laughs> and I said, well, I think they're false professors. So it is, it is a question here. Who exactly is Paul talking about here when he says, who are these people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ? And I say it's more than likely that these are professing Christians. 
One reason for that is Paul uses the word live just like he does in verse 17. He says, you know, follow my example just as you have us a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do, Christian living. These people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he kind of uses the same language here sort of for Christian living. Another reason people commonly think these are professing Christians and not just a false teachers in the sense of, you know, unsaved people. Now, we don't know whether, I'm not saying whether they're saved or unsaved, they're, they're professing Christians. And so, you know, what their spiritual state is exactly unclear, you know. But another reason is because uh, Paul is moved to tears here about this. Uh, I tell you again, even with tears that many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. It's, it's unlikely that Paul would be moved to tears about, you know, just false teachers. I mean, we don't, we're kind of upset at the Jehovah's Witnesses, but their false teaching doesn't move us to tears generally, you know what I mean? But if you found somebody in your church, you know, was teaching false doctrine, that's, that's upsetting, isn't it? That's, that's, that's very upsetting. But because the Jehovah's Witnesses are running around teaching you know, craziness, that doesn't exactly move us to tears all the time. We know that that's happening, and we expect that. So it looks like that Paul reserves these kinds of phrases, tears, when he's really talking about the actions of professing believers. That's what upsets him in a number of other cases. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he, he talks about this and uses that kind of language. So most people say these are probably professing believers who are sort of on the fringes of the church, maybe, who, who are sort of maybe outside the immediate congregation, but they're having an influence on the church, and Paul is concerned about the influence. Uh, the, the main problem with these enemies of the cross of Christ is not doctrinal. The main problem apparently is not doctrinal. It's as they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not that they are so much promoting false doctrine, but they're living a certain way. Their lives, they're living lives that are really not in conformity to Christianity or bringing shame on Christianity. They're living like or as like enemies who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, he says, Their destiny is destruction. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So here we have a description of who these people are. I've suggested they are uh, Christians, uh, professing Christians, uh, who, who are, whose lives are such that you might have sus you might suspect you might have suspicions maybe they're not really genuine born again people but they're they seem to be professing christians but here they're described in more detail it first of all says their end their destiny is destruction now this is a very strong word here this word is the word that's usually used to describe eternal destruction uh, this is a common word in the Apostle Paul's language. And almost always it's used to describe really eternal destruction rather than just some temporal or, you know, physical, you know, kind of destruction. Uh, that's how it's, it may be always used that way. There's one place where there's some question about and maybe here too. It's difficult to be positive about this. Um why would Paul use this kind of language? Because, remember we talked about this doctrine of perseverance. Perseverance. That is, Christians are those who persevere, continue in the faith and good works. As a result of being born again, we are going to continue in faith and good works. We may fall away for a while. We may become carnal. We may fall away for a good while. <laughs> But God will eventually bring us back to him if we're true believers. That's the doctrine of perseverance. And um, 
it looks like these people um, may be not persevering. And, and people who make professions and don't persevere are probably not really true possessors of regeneration. They're probably not truly saved. In other words, there are people who have made professions of faith, gone forward in churches, done this, been baptized, and then they give up that profession. They, they just leave Christianity completely. Well, they didn't lose their salvation. They just never had it. They, they went along for a while. Hebrews 6 talks about people like this who profess to be Christians. This is a very difficult thing. Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares, remember, in that parable. He said the wheat and the tares, they grow up side by side, and they're very similar looking. They, they seem many times the same. But then there comes a time here, and so Paul says people who... People who live like this, the way they're living, which is sinfully, apparently here very sinfully, Paul says if you live that way sinfully, your end is destruction. Again, he's not saying that a true Christian can lose his salvation, but he's saying anybody, no matter what kind of profession they make, if they live a certain way, they are ultimately doomed for destruction. I think about a well-known passage on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians. And he's kind of warning them. He's kind of warning them because they have a lot of sinful activity among them. And uh, remember in 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're... 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. In other words, Paul says... Your, your, your lifestyle ha- is, is, has so much sinful activity that sometimes I worry about you. So examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. You're, you're living such carnal lives. It's interesting that he says, um, Paul says in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, um, he says, He's talking to them there about this problem of lawsuits in the church. You remember in 1 Corinthians, one of the things that was happening were some people in the church were suing other people. They were taking them to court about some pretty petty, apparently, property matters. And Paul says in in these issues, we don't know exactly here, but it seems to be talking about uh, little small property matters. For instance, you know, your next-door neighbor is a Christian, his son throws a throws a baseball through your window. You shouldn't just immediately call your lawyer and take that person to court. Paul says you should be able to settle this among yourself and you can't take it to the church and you know, you shouldn't be taking these before the ungodly. This gives Christianity a bad reputation. But he says in verse 7, he says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's saying here, don't you know that those who commit acts of wrongdoing as a way of life will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's not talking about people who've ever committed a sin. We know we're all sinners. People, <laughs> Christians commit sins. He's talking about a lifestyle here, a way of life. Don't you know those who act this way? The NIV is trying to capture this now with the word wrongdoers. Don't you know that wrongdoers? It, it's, it's speaking about those who progressively commit acts. And, and he names these acts. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well... Of course, many of us have committed some of these sins here, but the point is he's talking about a lifestyle of sin. Don't you know that people who engage in this kind of conduct, unrepentant conduct, these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And that's why he's warning the Corinthians. These sins that we commit, we think they're just, oh, they're just little things, they don't mount to But if, if we find ourselves in a pattern of sin, a lifestyle of sin, we have to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> Am I really a Christian if I'm just... Can I sin with impunity? Can I sin without feeling any effects of it? It doesn't bother me, you know. That's a very dangerous situation to be in. 
And so that's kind of what we have here when Paul says the people who are living like this, like enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is ultimately going to be destruction. He says their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. Now, I'll say here in the next paragraph, the identity of these people has been understood in two different ways. That is, this has been debated for many hundreds and hundreds of years. Who exactly are these people whose God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame and their mind is set on earthly things? Who does that sound like? Some regard them as the Judaizers of chapter 3, verse 2. I mentioned some commentators here. These are just commentaries. These are commentaries. People who write Bible experts who write commentaries on Philippians. Some people say, you know who we're talking about here? We're talking about those Judaizers we talked about in chapter 3, verse 2. It's those he's saying when he says their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. I say here, uh, others see them as antinomians. What is an antinomian? Remember, antinomian Namas is the word for law, and antinomium is against law. It's used to describe a person who is lawless or is just, you know, can commit sin without seemingly any problem. They're just immoral, antinomian. There have been, there, there, there have been in the early church, there were all kinds of heresies. There were people who called themselves Christians who were that's where the name came from, who were antinomians. Remember there were one of the earliest heresies in the church was called Gnosticism. You've probably heard people talk about Gnosticism. Well, among these Gnostics, they believe that salvation comes from knowledge and so forth, and certain people are chosen to have this knowledge. But they kind of divided into a couple groups. One group, one group believed that uh, the body is inherently sinful. They both all believe the body is inherently sinful, so they thought that you should treat the body very harshly. You should keep it under control, much like, say, monks in the Middle Ages did and so forth. They beat their bodies and so forth, trying to drive out sin and so forth. Martin Luther did that. We talked about him. But the other group said, no, uh, it doesn't make any difference what you do with your body. Just live it up because it's the soul inside that counts. It's the soul that's going to heaven. And so the body does. So you can just live as you want to, eat, eat drink, and be merry, you know. That's called antinomianism. So people who, and so that word is thrown around even today among certain Christians who seem to live very careless lives and seem to think it doesn't make any difference how I live and so forth. I made a profession in faith and so, so what, you know, antinomian. So there are, there are two, two ideas here. Some think these people are Judaizers and some think they're antinomians. That is, they are Christians who are professing Christians but they're living careless, sinful lives, and they don't seem to be concerned about it. Now, how do they get that? Well, they take the phrase, um, they take the phrase as I say here, their God is their belly as an allusion to Jewish food laws. Remember, the Jews had strict laws about what you could eat. You can't eat pork, you can't eat this, and so forth. And so the idea is their God is their stomach. That is, they're always concerned about these food laws, what you eat, what you don't eat, and so forth like that. That's, that's the theory here. Uh, what about this phrase, uh, their glory is in their shame? They take this as a reference to circumcision. You say, how do they get circumcision out of that? Well, it's not <laughs> easy. Uh, their glory is in their shame. That is, um, that is the Judaizers, remember, demand, the Judaizers demanded food laws. That's true. So that, that fits the Judaizers. They demanded food laws. Their God is their stomach. Their glories, they demanded that their converts be circumcised, the men be circumcised. And so they take this as their glory is in their shame. They take the word shame to be a euphemism for the private parts. This, this is kind of odd. I know it seems strange, but that's what the theory is. Anyway, I think this is wrong. I think it's very unusual for Paul to speak of circumcision as shame, that he would call circumcision shame, I think is not likely... There's no evidence for this. So I think the most likely view is we, most of us who read it, read it in an antinomian sense. If we just read the English here, their God is their stomach. That sounds like somebody who just casting aside all restraints, you know, gluttony or whatever. Their God's their stomach. They're just concerned about their appetites, whatever kind they are, whether they're really physical or sexual or any kind of appetite they have. Their glory is in their shame. We think of these people as 
more licentious. So that's what I say. But I think a little more likely, verse 19 refers to licentious people, wickedly sinful, you know, immoral people. Fee, in his commentary, is for that word, the kind of triumphalist antinomians Paul speaks against throughout 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 1 through 4. So this is where that word triumphalism comes in. These, these people are people who are full of themselves, and they're touting their their own abilities. They they don't seem they really don't concern about personal holiness. They just have a very positive attitude about themselves. They despise others. So I think this is this is more likely what we have here is more likely antinomiums. So the phrase "their God is their belly" is you know most most naturally understood like it is throughout Scripture. And Paul says in Romans sixteen eighteen he says. Uh, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, their own bellies, he says. By smooth talk and flattery they deceive. So when he says they're serving their own appetites, he's talking about people who don't have any restraint. It's it's kind of a reference to gluttony and greedy, dissipated lifestyle, that kind of thing. Um, It says their glory is their shame. This might describe sexual immorality, the idea that they take pride in sexual immorality, they should be ashamed of this, and so forth. The last clause, their mind is set on earthly things. That's probably a more reference to worldliness. you know. So I think more likely, these are people that Paul is facing, these people who uh, are not living according to the, the way Paul has laid down. They're living to suit themselves, their own earthly pleasures, They're living a very sinful life, and this is having an effect on the congregation. Paul is very concerned about that because Paul has his single-minded, this one thing I do, I'm pressing toward the goal of holiness and godliness. I'm, I'm looking towards Christ. Finally here with this last section, I've entitled uh, Heavenly Citizenship. But our citizenship is in heaven. So in contrast to these enemies of the cross of Christ, these people who are influencing the Corinthians, influencing the, uh, the Philippians, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Remember, we talked about this verse before because Paul said in chapter 1, conduct yourselves, you know, in this way. And that was the word, conduct yourself as a citizen. Now he alludes to it again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say here, the enemies of the cross, their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. The Christian citizenship is in heaven, and for him, earthly things must at best be secondary. So the Philippians would understand this language very well. Remember, because Philippi was a Roman colony, we said, these people were very proud of their citizenship. Remember in Acts 16 is where the church is established, and there in Acts 16 it talks about the officials said, we're Romans, and this guy's come into town spouting all this nonsense. We're Romans. We can't accept this kind of stuff. We're Romans, man. Uh, so they're very proud of their Roman citizenship. So they can understand this language. Paul says, hey, really, <laughs> our citizenship is in heaven. I say here, but Paul does not draw a direct connection between the fact that we belong to a heavenly commonwealth and the obligations that are therefore incumbent upon us. Rather, Paul proceeds to build his case on the character of the hope that such a commonwealth provides. So he doesn't say exactly, we're citizens of heaven, so we should live this way, but we're citizens of heaven, therefore heaven is where we should be looking to. We're citizens of heaven... And so that's where we're going to, and that's our hope. So why are we spending so much time on the here and now? You know, Why is our mind so consumed with the here and now? He's saying our eyes should be heavenward. We should be anticipating the coming of our Savior. And if we have that heavenward look, we eagerly await a Savior. You know, boy, I wish I could say that more. I eagerly await a Savior from heaven. Because that's a very helpful thing. That's a very helpful attitude, isn't it? And the Bible is filled with verses that that talk about that. And and if we can get, if we could get some of that, we could be better Christians. Remember 1 John 3 3 says, 
everyone who has this hope, the hope he's talking about there is the hope of his appearing. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So this heavenly look, this heavenly citizenship should help us be pure. Second uh, Peter 3.14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this promises, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and peace with him. So he's, Peter's saying that, First John is saying that, as you look forward to that, your citizenship, your heavenly home, that should have an effect on us now. Verse 21, who by the power that enables him, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we will, we will be like his glorious body. Christ's return will transform believers' mortal bodies so that they will conform to the character of his resurrection body. The present body is described as this lowly body, or literally it says the body of our humiliation, our humble bodies, our lowly bodies. Our bodies now are defective in the sense they're affected by sin, they're susceptible to persecution, to disease, sinful appetites, to death. And at the coming of Christ our earthly bodies will be transformed by resurrection, you know, or the, you know, the rapture and ultimately the resurrection will be transformed into that glorious body, the, the kind that Paul is pressing toward there. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I say that therefore indicates that Paul now intends to apply the preceding argument to the Philippians' specific situation. The phrase, in this way, refers back to the previous verses, probably the whole of chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, especially their imitation of Paul. Therefore, in light of all I have said about my way of life, my following after the heavenly calling and so forth, my pressing toward the goal, I want you to stand firm. That's the word we've been using, stand firm, or we said persevere. I want you to persevere. Uh, it's the same kind of exhortation we had you know, back in chapter 1, verse 27. So he has this real love for these people. He really loves these people. My brothers and sisters, I, long, I love and I long for. He describes them as his joy and his crown. This is the, the, the greatest thing in his life for these people and their ultimate future you know, salvation, glorification. He tells the Thessalonians, you know, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? It is it not you. You're, you're really what I'm living for, Paul says. You're what I'm devoting my life for, and I want you to make progress in your Christian life. The, the Philippians were his present joy, and he received, he loved these favorable reports he got of their spiritual growth. This, was, this is what concerned him. This is what he was living for. So think about that when you think about, you know, people who have, who have you know, tried to help you in your Christian life, who have worked for you. Think about your pastor and others. Their greatest joy is to see, you know, your spiritual growth, to see you progress in your spiritual life. And it's a real disappointment when you don't, when we don't, it's, it's a real tough thing for them because they've devoted themselves to this. Many people, teachers, Sunday school teachers, friends, family, and others, it's a real disappointment to them when we don't live up to the kind of things Paul is saying here. All right, let's stop here at this point, and we'll come now to chapter 4 next time. And We've got two times, so we should be pretty much right on schedule here. And we'll try to, not next week, so we're off next week for uh, Thanksgiving week, okay? So there's no nothing next Wednesday, and then we should see you, Lord willing, in two weeks, and we should be able to finish up this last section.